Hi, you're listening to Food People Are the Best People, a new podcast for people who love food from the Eat, Drink, Dine Network. I'm your host, Judy Ann Wu, and this podcast was inspired by my culinary hero, Julia Child, who once said, People who love to eat are always the best people. I'd have to agree. I believe that some of the best people in the world, the most fun, the most creative, the most passionate people you'll ever meet are people who are just maybe a little obsessed with food. On this inaugural episode, episode one, I'm so honored to have Dave Arnold, the biggest foodie I know, join me as my first guest. Dave is the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink in New York City, which is dedicated to the history and culture of food. He's also the founder of Booker and Dax, the most innovative small batch kitchen equipment design company, inventor of the Spinzall and Searsall. He's also the author of the James Beard and IACP award-winning book, Liquid Intelligence, the art and science of the perfect cocktail. Dave is also the host of Heritage Radio's cult favorite, highly rated podcast, Cooking Issues. Welcome, Dave. Hey, well, thanks for having me, Julianne. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being my first guest. I really wanted to be someone I really knew, first well, of all. We've, we've known each other a long time. Yeah, I know. I looked it up last night. 2007. Yeah, yeah. Long time. In the food world, that's forever. That's more than forever in the food world. Yeah, I think when I met you, your, um, your boys were still in strollers. Oh, my God. You know, uh, so Booker and Dax. So Booker and Dax, the company is named after the, my two kids, Booker and Dax. Mm-hmm. And this is going to make you feel really old. Booker is 19 and six foot two. Oh and, my God. <laughs> yeah. And Dax is 16 and like six one. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They're both way taller than I would ever imagine. Um, yeah. They look great. I love following your social feeds and they are, they are taking after you in the kitchen. I see too. Well, sometimes, I mean, in the sense that they make a giant mess for sure. You know, I'm uh, I'm known for not working as cleanly as I'd like to work, you know, compared right. to you know, most right. of the pros that I work with. Yeah. I don't know if you realize how much of an influence you have in my life beyond just like, like, for example, my children roast coffee thanks to you, you oh, know, nice. because I think you introduced the idea of roasting coffee to Gregor via the Whirly Pop or something like that, you know? He yeah. Well, he, he went down that rabbit hole. And so we've been roasting coffee since our Brooklyn days. And then we, you know, roast coffee here. And then the children got into roasting coffee. So, you know, I say only in Portland where you find, you know, maybe Portland and Brooklyn where you find like children, grade schoolers roasting coffee. You know, I know so, that's you. <laughs> are you are you still using the Whirly Pop or do you, have you graduated oh, no, to a different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you using? upgraded. Now? Yeah, he got a uh, like a professional grade tabletop kind of version of, you know, like a professional roaster would use for like their test batch. Yeah, like the well, so there's I forget the name of the company, but there's a new outfit that's making the equivalent of like the old uh, uh, Jabez or Habez. I don't know how to pronounce it. Burn sample roasters. They're real <laughs> nice. I've never used one, but they look really nice. Do you like it? You know, I, I don't, I am so not a project person. I just like to reap the rewards. So I am, I mean, I don't know if that's, if it's that way in your relationship, but you know, Gregor's all about, Gregor's my significant other and he is, he loves a good project. He's a photographer by trade, loves to tinker, loves to build stuff. And so he, you know, he follows all your stuff. And so it's almost like you spur him on. Cause like when you started, cause he, he got really into bread too, bread and pizza. But when he saw you starting to grind your own wheat, 
and blending and all this kind of stuff. And he started and I said, no, uh, -uh. like, don't even think about it because it's a mess. It's a mess. I, uh, I mean, look, for me, like, uh, yeah, I, I have to say, so the grinding wheat thing, like, First of all, for those you know that don't know, you know, you're his. Gregor is a very machine-friendly person, so if he wants to do something with a machine, you know, I think he should. Whether it's motorcycles or restoring, like you know, vintage fans, or do you still have your vintage fan collection or not? We have way too many fans. I don't know where to put them. I keep saying, get rid of the fans. They they moved. They migrated from the photo studio in New York, and now they're all over my house, and they scare me because they have no protective like finger things i'm always afraid my finger my children are gonna like get their hair caught in it and break their neck well yeah. is he running these fans i mean for people who can't picture this they're very like graphically nice old like old old like chromey chrome fans yes. but you could definitely feed fingers through these things like no problem no problems <laughs> like no this is pre like whatever lawsuits no were involved yeah pre yeah whatever it is it's like, have you ever seen the very, it's not quite this bad, have you ever seen like the very, very old meat slicers, the original W.A. Van Burkle meat slicers? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the very first one that, uh, you know, Burkle, you know, W.A. or whatever it is Van Burkle invented had no guards on it whatsoever. It was just a giant spinning oh, vertical my. blade. And you would do the crank and the meat would just go boom, boom, boom by this vertical, but nothing. You, if you, like if you tripped, like you tripped right. head first into it, like you'd have like forehead through the blade. I right. think very soon after the first one, they figured out that you might want to like, you might want to like, people trip. You might want to like, you know, protect it's amazing. the blade. Honestly, Dave, that you are still alive and you still have all your fingers because, um, I don't think you're not clumsy. You never struck me as clumsy, but like you are like, I remember you told me that story where you caught yourself on fire before. And, oh yeah, yeah. You know, all these yeah. kinds of things. And I, you know, um, for people who don't know, I, you know, I, Dave and I, we, I had the pleasure of working with Dave. We worked together at the French culinary Institute in New York city. And I would have to say during the heyday, right. It was like, I think we were there for the, the best years of the school, honestly, oh, yeah. in my personal opinion. <laughs> Oh yeah, man. And that's where that's where cooking issues started, right? Yeah. So cooking issues. So originally, so I was hired on to, uh, and I can see why you think. I mean, look, I, I would do some things that you shouldn't necessarily do at the at the cooking school. So like you know, like there was a time when all the chefs were like, "Can you carbonate ice cream?" So I tried right. to I tried to pressurize one of our uh, one of our small Taylor uh, ice cream machines with CO two <laughs> and blasted. <laughs> blasted ice cream base all over the all over the kitchen that was in a culinary kitchen or someone's like can you heat these rocks on a stove so mm -hmm. i heat the rocks in the pastry kitchen and they would explode and there were <laughs> rock shards everywhere so i can see why people thought it was kind of like it was a problematic but my job at the french culinary so i went so i met you because you were running something called pastry scoop which was like the thing every pastry chef in like new york wanted to be working with you because you were pushing pastry when, by the way, you're saying the mm -hmm. cooking schools were at their height. Pastry, right? In terms of pastry, was at its complete height. Like there was a, there was a. I don't think people even coming up know now, but there was like a, there was like a six year window mm -hmm. when pastry chefs were as famous as like the savory side chefs without right. even having their own bakery. I mean, we're talking right. like pastry chefs were getting extremely well known. I, you know, I think you're part of that. You were really pushing pastry chefs to have their own kind of um, 
their own kind of uh, press uh, image, like aside from like the restaurant and aside mm -hmm. from the, um, you know, and, and aside from the, the savory chef or the, you know, the, the exec. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there was maybe, you know, prior to when you were working on that stuff, there was maybe like four pastry chefs that, you know, people could name really. And then it just went to like, oh, who's the pastry chef at that restaurant? Because that became an important selling point. So right. while, while you were working on that, I came into the SCI to work on what was what I called the culinary technology department. So I was the person who started it. Um, you know, Michael Batterberry from Food Arts was the one who kind of, you know, said, hey, you know, hire this idiot. I was the idiot. Hire this idiot <laughs> to come in. And, you know, um, you know, Michael's responsible for me getting hired there, too, because he was the one that because Dorothy Can Hamilton, you know, the founder of the French Culinary Institute, said she described what she was looking for. And he said, well, um, what you need is you need Judy Ann Wu. And so that's essentially how I got my job, too. We oh, both of our career starts there at to Michael. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. My, Michael was I mean, that's what Michael was kind of best at was you know, putting two people together or strong arming someone into hiring someone uh, <laughs> based on his opinion that they would, you know, that it was the right move. And he was very often correct. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of the people that he, you know, backed are very, very good. Um, right. He was know. the founder of uh, Food Arts Magazine, also, you know, founder of Food and, Food and Wine before it was sold just a little background about who Michael Battery Barry is. So yeah, yeah, bankrolled by Hugh Hefner. So, <laughs> you know, you know, that, you know, both of them, um, you know, Michael and, you know, Ariane, they were, they were started both magazines. Mm -hmm. And he was also just like, super dashing. I love that guy. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yes. he, he can like, dress. He was so smooth. Oh, oh, my God, I, I believe that he had I mean, I don't know this because I never saw him in his bedroom, but I'm assuming he had like three piece pajamas with like like a really nice made tie. Yeah, yeah. yeah with those, I mean, those slippers. Yeah, he always looked like a, like a billion dollars, and his voice was so good. He was such That's a smooth voice. He, you know, I, I I never heard it, but I heard that he used to be like a, a was a crooner, you know, uh, mm -hmm. back in the in the day day. Uh, yeah. It, uh, yeah, so it's it's you know sad when he when he when he died it was like that was the end of one era and then when Dorothy you know mm -hmm. when Dorothy died that was the end uh, of of another era. I mean that most of that the people who you know he championed and that you know she worked with like they're some of the big movers and shakers today. But just that that whole that whole generation is is fast mm -hmm. fast fading. Um, but yeah, so, so he twisted her arm and made me come on to be the director of culinary technology. And so like, I was working with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the chefs who were moving and shaking in New, in New York at the time, including a lot of your buddies from pastry. We had a lot of overlap pastry chefs. I don't know whether the average person not in the industry knows this, but I mean, pastry chefs are almost always some of the first people to adopt new innovations. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're. For, for whatever reason, they're, they're, well, A, they're, they were very much more open in general to technical based cooking things than a lot of savory people were. And I don't know, they, they just, uh, you know, there was a lot more kind of interest in being new and playful on the pastry side, at least back then. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I worked with a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of the people that you, you were working with at, at the same time. And so like it, 
the blog, originally Cooking Issues wasn't a podcast, it was a blog. And uh, the idea was is that we were coming up with all these new kind of cool things that, and, and the other thing I'll say about the FCI that was kind of interesting is, is that the chefs who were running it, at least when we started, were kind of old school French chefs. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, you know, I was allowed to be new, but I wasn't allowed to be like so new that it didn't have like wide applicability in kitchens with chefs. I needed to stay somewhat grounded. Right. Um, and I don't know how much of that spilled over into, into what you were doing, but the FCI put that very specific stamp on the work I was doing is that it couldn't be totally wingding. You know what I mean? It had to, for demos, I could go wingding, but <laughs> when I was teaching, it had to have real applicability to real, uh, real, uh, chefs. But anyways, we started the blog just as a way to kind of document what we were doing. Started about maybe halfway through uh, my job there. And then eventually, then I started the podcast. And then once I had the podcast, I stopped doing the blog because the blog was just taking so much time. But you know what? The next book I write, I, I think I hadn't said this before. This is the first time I'm saying, I think we're going to call it Cooking Issues. I think um, I'm just going to call the book Cooking Issues. Well, I think people, I think that, you know, there's many reasons, but people love the idea that you can really tackle a problem from not only the technical side, but you you have this foundation of you understand the old school method, you know, you understand the history or what it should be like, and then you'll take it to the next level. So, you know, the critique that people have for kind of the modern cooking or that movement, because, you know, this was during the time of the peak of, you know, molecular gastronomy, whatever you want to call it. Um, people critique it that, you know, you don't, it's, you can't just do these tricks just to do tricks. But I always felt like you, you know, and that's partly with your foundation of the Museum of Food and Drink, and, you know, you have this love of the old, like nobody does, you know? (laughs) I've always, I've always had huge respect for all the traditional techniques. And in fact, you know, uh, you know, when I came to work at the at the French culinary, like I actually really loved working with a lot of those old school Frenchies, like uh, mm-hmm. Alain Sayac, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like who is like hardcore old, you know, old school Frenchie. Right. And, um, you know, just lear- learning from those people, like even techniques that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily learn, like e- even if you were doing what, what we would typically call traditional cooking, like mm-hmm. when you're talking to someone who was cooking in France in the fifties, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, it's just a different, it's just a different kind of style. And so, you know, to be able to like bounce things off, off mm-hmm. of them, I thought was great for me because uh, like you say, originally, like I came from more, I was interested in the history of mm-hmm. uh, and the culture of the food. And I happened to be a gearhead and then right. it, and then it was, well, this, this thing was happening in food and I could then, you know, uh, apply my gear head, head and my food head to it. And that's how I kind of got into these, these new techniques. But, in, you know, in the real life, you know, when I'm, when I'm cooking, yeah, I love the, oh, I, you know, but I always temper, I think the, the modern traditionalists should temper their, should temper always with understanding. I think what ha- what's happened in the past 20 years or so is that cooks now want more of a, of a understanding of what they're doing, like an, to, so they can understand why they do these kind of traditional uh, techniques, whether they're going to, you know, be 100% traditional, whether they're 
doing something new or, you know, in the past 15 years, 16 years, kind of the, the desire to explore things other than traditional, what we call au cuisine in, in a restaurant and do a fantastic job at it. Maybe 20 years old now that trend is. I mean, because remember what it was like, it used to be if you weren't doing, you know, continental or, or French, you were nobody. And now, you know, you can you can tackle almost any kind of cuisine and, you know, be at the top top of your game. But no matter what you're doing, I think people now um, kind of see that you should understand the why uh, mm-hmm. of what you're doing. I mean, and, and to, you know, as a point, look at, you know, Kenji's uh, book, you know, which was kind of the first popular book that was put out that was at that you know, aimed at the kind of why of certain recipes. And it did more business than any book, like almost any recent book has. And it's because I think now people really want to know why cooking does what it does. Right. And I think some of your, like, if I think about your inventions, you know, which are, it's all in pursuit of making something, you know, better, like improving textures or flavors. I mean, when you were, you know, doing your cocktails, I mean, I was never a big, cocktail I never really cared much about cocktails till I met you and I tasted your cocktails and they were just so delightful you know and I we put up signs that say cocktails are stronger than they appear you know like <laughs> they went down so easy you know well I mean like uh, the, the so the fact of the matter is that you know with a lot of these new techniques we did make drinks that went down a little bit too easy and you know uh coming at it from more of the cooking side, I mean, not as a professional, but more like thinking about cooking, that was actually a real learning curve because, um, you know, we would do events and people would just end up on the floor. You know what I mean? Like I would, you know, like when we were first doing uh, carbonation, I mean, no one was carbonating. No one, no one, no one was carbonating. We're carbonating cocktails before anybody it was the first time i'd ever seen it oh yeah like 2005 like Mm -hmm. 2000 you know like we were carbonating at the fci carbonating left and right and you know and uh, training in fact people at other bars Mm -hmm. uh because we were doing i was training in people's pastry programs a lot of that was with you i was training in people's Mm -hmm. people on their savory programs and i was training people in their bar programs Mm -hmm. and um and there was a lot of new techniques right that you know, there's a, there's a lot of space to play in the bar, which is how I ended up, you know, writing a book on cocktails because not as many people were using these new techniques in the bar as they were on the, on the savory side. And, you know, Mirabold and his folks, you know, the modern cuisine, like, you know, Chris Young, they weren't tackling drinks. Like, so no one was really, no one was really playing in that field, which is how I ended up kind of more specializing in, in that after I left the FCI. But yeah, we, the, a lot of that cocktail stuff just came out of, well, we needed something fun to do with the food we were doing. So like, if, you know, if you had, you know, you're, you know, you were doing an event with, a, you know, a five or six pastry chefs, you're like, well, we need to have, if it's going to be a cocktail party, we need some cocktails. So you'd like pull me in to do some cocktails and I'm not just going to sling something together. So we were using kind of like fun techniques and you know, eventually we had at the FCI an internship program. And so like I needed interesting stuff for the interns to produce. And so we were doing a lot of fun stuff and developing a, a lot of techniques. Um, and so, you know, that's uh, how- of interns, you just had like, it was like an A-list of interns. They've all gone on to have these illustrious careers. I mean- <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Both at the FCI, the interns at the FCI and people I worked with at, at the FCI and mm-hmm. also, uh, at both bars, uh, the people who came in as, so people at the FCI who we had as interns, mm-hmm. I mean, when we think about um, at the FCI, 
you know, Jeremiah Stone was working there, right? He had just started. He was like super young. Like I was, right, was he, was in the, he was in the theater kitchen. He was making all this hors d'oeuvres and snacks. You know? Yeah, yeah. He was like he was one of the chefs in the in the in the in the yeah whatever you, the amphitheater kitchen right, right? the yeah, demo kitchen was there she had just left to do top yeah. and then, you know maybe he was three years old i don't know you know <laughs> what i mean like and it looked then, like he was about 12. i mean he was super yeah yeah and then his eventual partner in contra wild air and these guys are you know taking mm -hmm. the world by storm now you know, yeah uh you know fabian von husky who we always called fabulous and to this that, day i, still I know i love fabulous. that <laughs> yeah and so like he came in he was an intern and he was literally not 21 and I didn't know. And I had him making all these cocktails. And so everyone kind of hid from me that he wasn't right. legal to be, you know, working on this stuff. And so, you know, he was there, Nick Wong, who's now, you know, running uh, UB Preserve at, uh, in Houston with, you know, Chris Shepard, uh, Angela Gabatz, who was uh, now running, you know, the Goldenrod Pastries uh right. in um christina tossi was my intern for a while <laughs> that was my what? christina tossi milk bar really know? oh nice all right well see what i'm saying you were, yeah. you were you you were you were moving and shaking and pacing. we didn't have any money we didn't have any money in our department but we wanted to do all these cool things with these chefs and that just took a lot of manpower so i mean i had like 25 interns or something like that at a time just this rotating you know but it was an exciting time to be there food was really exciting and you know, and your your connection just to the food world. I mean, you're like, if you do a family tree, just <laughs> who's who, you know, in your family of everybody who's working. I know, you know, having Wiley Dufresne as your brother-in-law and Miley, you know, Miley Carpenter. Yeah, yeah no, so, and, and so it's like, yeah, that, you know, that, so eventually like that, you know, that group of, of people. So it was at Wiley, so Wiley Dufresne, who at the time had WD-50, um, you know, it was at the, I believe, 10th anniversary party of that, or maybe it was a different party at WD-50 was where mm -hmm. Dave Chang was like, let's start Booker and Dax, which, uh, is, how I, which is how I left the, the French Culinary Institute. Right. Because, because I wanted to build, uh, I wanted to build equipment. I, was gonna, I, I wanted to build an empire. <laughs> so. Well, he wanted, he wanted to build an empire. I wanted to build uh, equipment, right? right? And so, uh, you know, Booker and Dax has since split off from Momofuku. They're still a partner, you know, Ch mm -hmm. Chang is still a, a partner in the business. Um, but, you know, so anyways, that was how that was how that happened. How, that's how Booker and, and Dax all started. This time, all this time you built a museum too. Which yeah, so, so the museum, you know, the museum is, uh, obviously COVID has been, uh, a, you know, a huge uh, dent for every cultural institution, but we were just about to, so, P, you know, Peter Kim, who was the, so I, look, look, the Museum of Food and Drink, right? We don't have a, a, a permanent space yet. Mm -hmm. I came up with this idea in like 2003 or four. And that was the whole reason I was going to try to get into the food world was to start this food museum. I didn't, I didn't know anyone in the food world. Like Miley, my sister-in-law, Miley, who runs the Food Network magazine, she was in the kind of starting out in the food world. She eventually invites over to my house, like way back in the day. This is in like the nineties invites, uh, was it the nineties? Maybe, maybe 2000 invites like Bobby Flay over to, uh, to my house. He comes over introduced me to Pappy Van Winkle, which was crazy back when it was almost free. Like, uh, you know, got to know Jeffrey Steingarten back in the day through Miley. Yeah. But, and so, 
yeah, so then I was like, you know, oh, I, I want to be kind of in the food world. I want, and then I was like, oh, it needs to be this museum. But then I had, I had no, I had no ins. So my, you know, right. my wife, who's an architect, had, was doing a lot of furniture design, and she became friends with these people who put on trade shows. And uh, because she was working these trade shows and also doing some design for them for trade shows, she's an architect and at the time was doing mm -hmm. furniture and product design. So she's, she goes to the, one of these trade show people at the Javits, which is our nightmare of a trade show place here in New York City. It's just a freaking nightmare. The Javits is all trade show places are nightmares. Anyway, so it turns out they had some space in a show that was, you know, relatively food based. And because of Jen, they were like, hey, I hear you want to start this museum. Do you want to have a booth? And so I'm like, all right. So I did a booth. And I did a, a an exhibition on country ham, on American country ham, and right. it was the first it was the first ever first ever where someone took a bunch of American hams and a bunch of European hams and just sliced them. Going back to meat slicers again, mm -hmm. sliced them side by side. So I did a whole history of American country mm -hmm. ham, and I was like, you shouldn't try to eat American country. Ham. Well, most of us shouldn't try to eat it the way it's traditionally eaten. What we should do is eat it in the way that you would eat a prosciutto or at the time Serrano, no one had any Abirco like Bayota fed stuff in the US at that time. It just wasn't legal to bring in yet. I was like, it should be, you know, uncooked, sliced thin and eaten that way, the same way that you would eat something else. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was relatively kind of revolutionary. No one had done it. I mean, no one had done it. And then it became this, like, I think you made it this thing where like you could go to Mama Fuko and get the country ham. And it was like this, everybody must order it. And I think you introduced yeah. that to everybody. I was, Chang's, uh, I was Chang's ham consultant. I also did when, I don't know, ham you, you wouldn't remember it, but uh, yeah. Well, for a while then, like, it's like, I was like the country ham guy. Everyone called me Word. about country ham, right? <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of people have kind of put their toes in that because right after I was doing that stuff is when uh, Zimmerman's also started then uh, doing it. Uh, this is like, again, 2004 or something, 2003, 2004, it's hard to remember. So, so that was the first thing for the museum. That is what came to the attention of Michael Batterberry. And Michael Batterberry was like, I need you to write for Food Arts. Now, Food Arts was a trade magazine, but like imagine like a trade magazine that hired real writers and real photographers and like tackled real stories. So if if, if, if any of you out there have I'm missed, first of all, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't even know whether they have mag real magazines like this anymore, but like trade magazines, there was, there's a, a very stark divide between trade magazines and regular magazines that people would buy. And usually, trade magazines were like four or five levels worse in terms of writing. But Food Arts was the trade magazine that everyone had to read. It was not a throwaway. Like everyone right. had to read Food Arts magazine. Uh, and so, and that was, you know, Michael Batterberry. And so he was like, all right, Dave. Uh, and he was like, you're gonna, basically he took you, me under his wing. Like you were like the equipment editor, right? Didn't you I was there, well, yeah. Well, first, so he brought me in first to do history stuff because of the museum. So I was writing books on like, uh, you know, someone did a, a biography of, uh, of a chef. Like he was very well known in the 1800s in England named Alexis Sawyer. And he wrote a very famous book called The Gastronomic Regenerator that you know, no one reads today, but was uh, recommended, MFK Fisher recommended The Gastronomic Regenerator. 
And so I was like, well, if it's good enough for Emma K. Fisher, it's good enough for me. So, you know, for, through her, like I knew about Alexis Sawyer and I had gone to the New York Public Library and with a very old digital camera, like, you know, back, like they used to have those digital cameras that like, you would, young people today wouldn't believe like what, I remember when digital cameras came out, we're like, oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> so then like, I, I took that one into the, into the library and I shot the whole like 400 page book and printed, you know, uh, printed <laughs> it. And, um, you know, because there was no Google, there was no scanned anything, right. you know, at the time. Uh, I mean, maybe there's Google, but they hadn't started scanning books. Um, and so, you know, he originally had me on writing history stuff like that. Uh, you know, in fact, I still remember to this day, like, uh, this person was writing a, a book on Alexis Sawyer. And so Michael had me write something on the book and I read the thing and I was like, oh, this section of this book is plagiarized because I had read everything there was to read about like Alexis Sawyer. So we had to, then I had to call the author. It was a big thing. She apologized. It was a mistake, but boop, boop, beep. And so then only <laughs> after like I had been talking to and working with Michael, he realized I had been working with Wiley and then I was kind of Wiley's equipment guy. I was right. the guy who was buying stuff on eBay because no one, no chefs were buying stuff on eBay back then. This is like 2002, maybe 2001, 2002. And nobody had figured out that you could go buy equipment on eBay for nothing. Like eBay was still relatively new. And so, yeah, I was buying immersion circulators, which were two grand new at the time. I was buying them for like, five bucks plus like $12 <laughs> shipping. You know what I mean? And they would always break. And so I would have to sit there and keep them working all the time. Just keep yeah, them working, keep them working, keep them working. Yeah. Yeah. And so Michael was like, oh, you also know equipment. If if you know equipment, you know, uh, good enough to be Wiley's equipment guy, why don't you do equipment stuff for food arts? And so then I started being the equipment guy for food arts. And then Michael was like, you know what? Why don't you, uh, why don't I'm going to pitch you to Dorothy to do this uh, culinary technology thing at the French culinary and the rest is uh, history. Right. Yeah. yeah. Food arts is so great. I mean, I, we both, I wrote for food arts. I was a contributing editor and it was kind of my, and I hate, actually hate writing, uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I remember you and I, we were always like late on our assignments because you oh, know, so that, late, so yeah, late. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. we'd always be like the people who were like on, on deadline but it was hilarious because i'd be i'd be on de deadline and i'd be past due and then they say and then they because they knew that we both worked at the french culinary institute i get a call you know saying uh, by the way can you remind dave that his articles do <laughs> yeah yeah well they would always have like you know uh, there was two people there like beverly stevens lex pulos right one mm. of those two people would keep pestering us until it got so bad that they actually had Michael personally right. get in touch and say, you got to get it was, done. Dave, yeah, yeah. where's your article? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. And then you knew, then you knew it was serious. Like, you know. Right. Well, I mean, but look at all that. Look at all that has grown. And um, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm really, really proud of you because... <laughs> You know, I, I remember back, you know, I mean, you see you see stuff about you and it's like the the young Dave, everyone refers to as young Dave, like you're like you like you're two different people or something like suddenly you got old or something. It's like, no, you've you've aged gracefully during this whole time, but you've done a well, lot. Two, during... two, two kids and like uh, some businesses will definitely put some years <laughs> on you for sure. You know what I mean? Right. And how did you handle quarantine? Like, did you cook a lot? I saw you cooking, but you always cooked. 
I mean, yeah, no, I, I've always cooked, you know, we, we've never been a family that, uh, I mean, I probably should eat out more than I do just for business reasons. Uh, but yeah, you know, in general, you know, my wife, Jen, her, you know, her work was always really intense. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I was always working really hard. And so we tried to all, you know, have, you know, dinner be a time then we, we were be together and have the, you know, the kids there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so, you know, almost all the time I'd be, cooking at home, usually like simple stuff that, that you can do. Mm-hmm. So the pandemic, you know, didn't really change, uh, you know, for a while here in New York city, cause I was in New York city for the whole thing. It was, it got hard to get things, you know, sometimes, yeah. uh, at the beginning, you know, because everyone thought no one was gonna ever like make toilet paper again. And, you know, that, you know, no one was ever going to be able to wipe their behinds. And so, you know, toilet paper was impossible. And well, you, you were talking earlier about bread, like mm-hmm. flour, it's so crazy. So like, um, I had decided not really because of COVID strangely, but uh, I w- had been talking to Adam Leonti who had written a book and he was coming on cooking issues. And we were talking about, cause he was talking about grinding your own flour. Uh-huh. And uh, I, you know, I had had once when he was still baking in Brooklyn, right near where Roberta's is, he, he was part of that bread lab there when I started. And, you know, I had always hated freshly ground wheat. I had had a, uh, a KitchenAid attachment grain mill and I hated it. And I hated the bread that I made. It, so much. it just did a terrible job at grinding. It was just not good, you know? Yeah. And, and so, and the stuff that came out of it was bad. And, you know, I had had a lot of really bad luck with whole wheat flour. Like I never really loved the results I got with whole wheat flour. I mean, the, the, the only exception I would say is that, um, like, uh, certain like, um, uh, Indian, like Ada flowers that are like mm-hmm. kind of a little bit softer whole wheat. I liked them in biscuits and stuff. So I would always have some of that stuff around my house to work with, but in general, like what people's, you know, uses whole wheat. I've never really liked it. And then, you know, I had Adam's whole wheat bread and I was like, oh, maybe I should. And he was saying that these new mills that he had really worked well. And so I got, I got interested in it. So then the pandemic hits and it turns out that you can't get a grain mill anymore because everyone, you know, I say wants to be like little house on the prairie, even though they live in Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, all these like home grain mills that they couldn't even get people to take. Now it's like, you know, you can't buy one. There's like a, there's like a three month wait list. So I ended up buying one on eBay, like one that nobody, the trick on eBay is finding something that's high quality, but it's not the name brand. So nobody wants it, right? Nobody (laughs) wants it. So I found one that was like, literally it was Thompson. No one had ever heard of it. This grain mill that somebody referred to as a Mormon mill and it shipped to me from Arizona. And I got into, this, uh, you know, I got into milling flour. So I've been milling flour now for a little over a year, like, uh, you know, two, three loaves a week. Plus I now mill, I mill all my own soft wheat too. You would like milling soft wheat, soft wheat, like mill, like milling your own soft mm-hmm. wheat for like quick breads and stuff is, is great. Um, I, I will easily take stuff, you know, I'm just not in, you know, you, that's where you and Gregor are the same. Cause he's always buying stuff on eBay. He's buying, he's trying to get the deals and whatever. And, and then he's like, you know, understand he'll fix it. He'll buy broken stuff and like fix it and stuff. But yeah, he's not on the patience for that. I think, I think you and milling flour is probably one of the, 
more one of the more acceptable things that I've heard you do. Like it's yeah. like, okay, that's not that weird. You know? this, this is, by the way, coming from a lady that raises squirrels. I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> yes, but that's different. That's easy. That's you know, they they need they need to be taken care of. So I see, I see, yes. I see. That's easy, but, I, but flower milling's hard. Flower, <laughs> milling, I'm gonna say, like. Uh, so like right now I'm currently running the test. I have to go look at it. So I'm going to, I was, I milled some flour last month mm -hmm. and I just set it aside and then I'm going to mill some more this week. And then next week, and I'm going to do one, I'm going to do fresh one week, one month and see right. kind of how, how much uh, of a difference I can see whether or not like it's just all in my head like the fact that the fresh stuff is like so much better, whether it's real. Cause I don't think it's only flavor. I think, uh, I haven't fully read up on it yet. I'm working on it and I can't really, I don't know how much it is I can include in the book because I'm not going to expect people to go out and buy a mill. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I'm expecting that, uh, oxidation some of the stuff in whole wheat, not only affects flavor, but also, uh, volume and rise. And so like, I'm going to be looking at, at that going forward. But part of the new book, part of the problem of the new book is, is that I want to use some of what I've learned about, while I'm milling flour. Right. To try to explain to people what they don't know. Because the way people have been writing about flour is wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> like it, it's, it's so the, 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 the simplifying rubrics that we have used to discuss flour in the past have given us kind of a bad idea of what's actually going on in flour. And I've only learned this because I've been milling. So I want to include some of this milling stuff in the book with the caveat that I don't expect that you will ever go out and buy a mill. You know what I mean? It's like, what do you want to know about milling to make you a better cook, even if you're not going to mill something? That's kind of the, how I'm taking it. Don't you think people want to know if fresh is better? Cause you know, like with coffee or things like that, or even my mom is, crazy about rice and she'll be like oh it's the fresh rice and she always wants to know like when it was harvested you know and she'll there's a certain amount of like aging that's good like you know, even with coffee like i don't know do you right when you roast coffee you're it's not as good as like if you wait a little like the well, aging. it definitely changes a lot of people like again going down a rabbit hole is like mm -hmm. After you roast coffee, it's put it's pushing off uh, CO2 for mm -hmm. days, right? And so a yeah. lot of people don't like to use it right away. Uh, mm -hmm. They like to wait. I have used it right away, and it's crazy. It foams like a loony bin in the in the in the machine in this in the espresso machine. I kind of like it. So then some people have done really interesting tests where they'll they'll roast a batch and then they'll mm -hmm. do a shot right away. They'll do a shot then in the evening and they'll just do it like every 12 hours or every day and trace how they like it over that time. And it changes. Everyone yeah. agrees that once it's stale, it sucks. But right. like, w but once you're before that, you know, it, it's a matter of what you, of what you like, you know what I mean? It's the same way right. that when you're, when you're, you know, one of the tests that, you know, early tests I did in the cocktail world was uh, fresh versus, couple of hours old versus a day old with lime juice and right. you know it turns out that most bartenders who you know uh, learn the craft using juice that was juiced at the beginning of shift and they're mainly using it later on in the evening prefer mm -hmm. juice that's a couple of hours old so it's mm -hmm. like it's not necessarily right or wrong it's just uh, people need to understand what you know what is happening to it 
Um, you know, and then, you know, if you like your juice when it's made right away, then make it right away. If you like it when it's four <laughs> hours old, yeah, make it four hours old. Everyone knows that old juice sucks. Right. Uh, really old juice, right? Now with flour, it's a little bit different because the kind of flour we get is fundamentally different from when you're milling the whole wheat. Because what happened, even if you buy whole wheat flour, they're uh -huh. taking the wheat, tempering it, throwing it through rollers. The wheat and the germ and the bran are mm -hmm. like basically the endosperm is getting separated very early on. Then it's just going down finer and finer just on the endosperm. And then if they want to add back the bran and whatnot, and they add it back afterwards. Whereas, you know, it, it, it's even too much of a simplification to say, you know, stone ground versus roller ground, because a lot of people, when even when they're using stones, like America really pioneered uh, this kind of like multiple milling technology back in the 1800s. So there's like people who are one pass shot, that's what I do, mm -hmm. versus mul multiples, right? But uh, that's not even the most important part, because I'm assuming that most people aren't going to use um, fresh flour. Uh, it's more like people try to focus on gluten or the hardness of the wheat where really that's super important, but A, not all protein is gluten, right? And B, and B starch damage is hugely important. <laughs> so when you're, it's hugely important. So like when you're, when you're dealing with a soft flour, so when you're dealing with, so like when you're baking a cake, Mm -hmm. do, what, what kind of flour do you, what kind I of flour mean, do you use? Most of the time I use all purpose. And the reason why is I'm trying, whenever I cook, I like to share recipes and stuff like that. And I want to make it easy for somebody, somebody to replicate. So I'm not going to give them a recipe where it's like 25% this 20, you know, like this many grams of that, whatever. I just try to figure out a way that I can use all purpose. The most right. I will do is maybe give a preferential brand, but that's about it. <laughs> so if you're writing for AP, like, you know, that you, good, that's easy, right? But mm -hmm. so like a lot of people when they're, when they're pushing, um, so if, let's say you're gonna spec cake flour, right? And so right. people wanna go get an unbleached cake flour. Now the, the issue with soft wheat, so here's the thing, soft wheat isn't soft or hard because of gluten. It's actually a different protein that makes wheat harder or softer. So you have incredibly hard wheats that don't actually have that much gluten in them, right? Mm -hmm. But when you mill a hard wheat, and this is regardless of how you're going to mill it, when you mill a hard wheat, you're going to get a lot more damaged starch. You're going to be breaking more starch across the, the starch granule. And when you damage starch, all of a sudden it can absorb a lot more water, right? So if you think about like cornstarch, right, doesn't really absorb that much water. And when you let it sit, it sinks to the bottom. That's because cornstarch is not damaged. Whereas mm -hmm. a lot of the free starch in, in like an AP flour is damaged starch. It can hold on to a lot more water. That's why you have to add. So if you have a high protein flour, you need to add more water to it because the gluten network takes up protein. But also if you have a lot of starch damage, you need to add uh, the, the starch damage water can soak up water. And so your dough is gonna be stiffer for a given hydration. If you're dealing with um, a lower, a softer wheat like that they would use for a cake flour it has very little starch damage and so mm -hmm. consequently the like the doughs can go really kind of slack they can spread out they don't rise much so that's why real people are they love the bleached the chlorine bleached 
uh, cake flour, like the like the whatever it is, white uh, what's it white called? Lily uh, what white that? lily. White lily, white lily, or the one with the swan on it, because oh, those yeah. those ones oh, yeah. have been chlorine treated, and when the chlorine treatment, it doesn't just bleach it. It also increases, I believe, strangely, I don't know, I forget what, what it, but it increases the water holding capacity of the flower and makes up for a lack of damaged starch. So, and the way you can get around this, if you don't want to use a chlorine, is to add a little xanthan gum. But if you have to understand, <laughs> which is what I've been doing. So I've been milling my right. own super soft wheat that doesn't have a lot of damaged starch. I want to keep the hydration levels the same. And so I just add a little bit of xanthan and, it's, and I get the same functional benefits of bleaching. Aside from the fact that it's not bleached. And so, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing where if you understand why a particular flower is working a particular way, you don't have to mill your own. But I would not have ever thought of this stuff if I didn't know from milling my own flower what was going on. Does that make sense? It's a little right. in the weeds, but. <laughs> well, this is why this is always so fun. Every time I talk to you, I always learn something new, you know, and then it also reminds me that I'm just like, okay, well, I'm just going to find a recipe where my cake is super soft and I don't have to like add xanthan gum, you know, <laughs> like I'm always in pursuit of the be the best recipe I can. But the well, same but, but the same, but if you, if you spec everything out, if you make it so that it's nice and tender, like by, I don't know mm -hmm. what, like adding more fat at, you know, adding more eggs, whatever you're doing and just having using AP or whether you're adding a cornstarch sub, the reason some people don't like a cornstarch sub into AP is because cornstarch really doesn't hold water very well. So it does decrease the whether or not it does make it uh, more tender, but it does mm -hmm. cause a problem on rise and bake uh, in mm -hmm. that it's not holding on to your structure very well. So if you don't have a lot of structuring stuff in mm -hmm. your in your in your cakes, you, you might get some collapse. We don't want any collapse there. So, I but mean, if you're writing your recipes for AP, you're writing for, it's a genius idea. Look, I don't like to intimidate. Style, but it's not my style, but like I should, if I, if I thought maybe like the way you did, maybe I would be, you know, doing better. If I tried to make the recipes such that everyone, you know, could make it easily, then you know, I'd be doing much better. It's important that there are people like you and then there are people like me because <laughs> I appreciate people like you asking those questions, trying to figure out the best possible way to improve something, then what I'm doing is I'm trying to simplify it. I'm trying to get it to be as few as ingredients possible, as simple as possible, so that it's not intimidating, so that everybody will go out and make it. Because otherwise, for some people, it's overwhelming. Like, it's too much information. It's too, it's, then they will never make that cake, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure half of my new book is going to be uh, <laughs> TLDR. And then, like, here's the answer, like, a little, like, a, like, like a one paragraph there's the answer and then like four pages of like if you really want to know you know yeah. what i mean oh i always enjoy reading it but that's the thing like i might not actually do the uh you know go through all the steps but i always enjoy the process because i do think that understanding how things work and you know understanding what ingredients do make you a better cook and so if you do have to make a substitution or do things on the fly you're doing it from a source of you know information and not just guessing for sure right Exactly. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping everybody believes. When is See, your otherwise, book? no one will buy my book. Uh, well, I have to write it. I'm writing it now. <laughs> uh, it's due in October, which means it'll come out a it's year sure. from then. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's due in October, so it'll come out a year from then. Well, I'm excited about it. Well, um, before we go, I do want to do these ten quick bites. These are questions that I want to ask all the ghosts, all, all the guests. So I said ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Well. I mean, I am quite pale, but <laughs> that's true. You are kind of pale, but um, 10 quick questions and we'll see how they go. So my first question is, what was the last thing you ate? 
meal or food? Oh, last thing I ate, uh, I've actually been super, uh, super slammed today. So I haven't eaten anything. So it was dinner last night mm -hmm. and uh, it was Jen's, was my wife's birthday. Oh. So I, I made uh, Jaeger schnitzel and spetzel. <laughs> try, try to say that fast. <laughs> yeah, spetzel und Jaeger schnitzel. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do love that you always create these really special meals for holidays and you have these family traditions of making certain things regularly, which I really love. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? That's been the, the in the pandemic, like we haven't had family dinners and it's like, that, the, you know, I can't imagine we have fewer cooking for one, but even just cooking for four, I really miss cooking for, you know, 10 people, 12 people. I miss I miss it tremendously. Yes. Well, that sounds delicious anyway. Um, let's see, when you were in school, were you a hot lunch kid or a sack lunch kid? Uh, mostly hot. We had a cafeteria, like most of the time when I was in high school, we had a cafeteria. And then in elementary school, we didn't have that. So it was a sack, you know, mm -hmm. PB&J. Yeah, we were the last PB&J generation. <laughs> I only ate hot lunch because my, my mom didn't know what to pack in my lunch because, you know, it was Korean food. And she knew that I would want to eat Korean food at school. So I always got hot lunch. Wait, um, even in elementary school, you guys had a hot lunch? Yeah, always had hot lunch. Yeah. It was pretty good, too. I know people always knock the hot lunch program, but we had some, I remember some really nice things. It was my introduction to American food was uh, school lunch. So <laughs> what that's was what you think of America? American school? Was the, is the, that, I mean, that's that your was idea of American food? American was, wow. Really those like weird square pieces, those weird, those tiny cartons of chocolate mashed potatoes, milk. You know, with the ice cream scoop, mashed potatoes, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Italian yeah. spaghetti with uh, green beans from a can. And <laughs> oh my God, canned green beans. I haven't had a canned green bean in probably 25 years. And you probably shouldn't, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have a very particular flavor. So like, yeah. if you like that, and, and the last time I had it was actually more recently because we had them at, uh, when I was t talking, teaching with Harold McGee back at the French Culinary Institute. Uh -huh. And there is a, maybe someone out there likes that flavor, is shooting for it. It's a specific it's flavor. Wrong, I mean, I think people love what green bean casserole. And I mean, now it's all fancy. People make it all fancy. But isn't the traditional green bean casserole that can beans and you put the uh, the onions from a can and the cream of whatever soup? Yeah, like turkey, turkey brand canned fried onions. Uh, right. Yeah, I don't, I forget who makes the soup. Is it beans? Campbell's or French's? Yeah. Hell yeah, yeah. Yeah. Please. So I mean that that I understand is such a nostalgic dish that I wouldn't I would never like dismiss that if you know because that's what people grew up on and so use the canned green beans for that you know. Sure. So anyway, um, and I would say who a uh, question for who inspired you to be the person that you are today the food person that you are today like oh, food your, person yeah who in your family like how how did Dave Arnold become Dave Arnold when it came to food so my mom was uh even though she you know as a was a doctor and working like a like 100 percent of the time always wanted to cook really kind of crazy things so like i remember when i was a kid she would do uh we medieval feasts like way back in the day and i'm not talking like you know uh medieval times turkey leg i mean like right. there was there was at the time only one book available book on um medieval cooking it was actually kind of like late medieval, right? It was called uh, Fabulous Feasts. Uh, and I forget the name of the person who wrote it, but it was the only book available. And so uh -huh. mom got it and we were making like, you know, medieval feasts. This is in the seventies, you know? Wow. So it was, yeah, it was. What's on the um, menu? Uh, so 
you know, the, my mom really always liked this recipe called Chard Warden, which was a, a pear kind of applesauce. But, the, you know, the, obviously the problem is that we don't have real warden pears. You can't buy real cooking pears here. You can only buy eating pears here. But if you get them underripe, they make a decent kind of Chard Warden. So that's the one that she continued to make even when she wasn't doing the piece. But she did the old school one where we did the cock and trice where it's like she bought a whole pig. We cut the pig in half. Yes. We put it on the back. Yeah. I mean, like, you know all the meantime she's like um you know literally so in 83 or 4 she started the heart transplant program at columbia mm -hmm. so it was like you know while she was doing that she was well, also was a big deal in the medical world you know she huge. there was a there was a she was on a billboard right in times square yeah yeah huge huge deal yeah uh she's at, you know i don't know if i can say this but she you know she's going to retire i think you know pretty soon mm -hmm. uh and that'll be another another End of end of an era in pediatric heart transplants for sure. Yes. Um, so I would say, you know, uh, I would definitely look to her cooking, but also like, you know, people used to do like a lot of dangerous stuff. I remember like when I was a kid, I would just go downstairs and cook, you know. So like, you know, before my yeah, oh yeah, I'm talking like young. So like my my parents got divorced. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I guess, is when they got divorced. And I remember before that, like going downstairs and making breakfast in bed and bringing it up, using the fry, fry pan and all that. And then like right around that time, you know, making beignets by myself. Hot you know what oil. I mean? Oh yeah, <laughs> hot oil. And so like- Oh my know, gosh, flatter. Like, so for, for any of you that were alive in the 70s, right? Or 80s, everyone used to have in their house these, these skillets these electric skillets and they were kind of square with rounded corners like you had a dial the temperature yeah, they had a, right they had a dial so it was like a, a weird like what looked like a giant skewer that you would with a dial on it you shove it into the skillet and turn it up and they're wide right and so like a lot of ways to splash and they're pretty right. shallow i was frying in those i, <laughs> I would just take that and i'd fill it with oil and then just start making you know Oh my gosh. That's what I'm saying. Oh, from a mix? Well, we had you gotta start somewhere. Mix. You gotta, gotta start, start somewhere. somewhere. But that's what I'm talking about when I say that it's a miracle that you're still alive and you still have all your, you know, digits and stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And once a week when I was a kid, my my you know, my parents encouraged me to cook. So like I had this uh I believe it was one of uh President Eisenhower's daughters wrote a, a kid's cooking book that I got when I was very young and they had a recipe for paper bag chicken in it and I would make that once a week for the family I would cook so like like from an early age I was I mean the family us I was the only child at that time right. um, but from an early age I was encouraged to not just to eat but to cook for other people you know what I mean I think that that's a kind of a, a good thing is to encourage if you want people to be cooks you know, encourage, encourage them to cook for other other people you know right the first cook the first recipes i ever cooked were from ranger rick did you ever get ranger rick that oh magazine? snap ranger there was always like a recipe in the that. back oh, i remember i made um in as an adult i looked back and i was like i made pastry cream because it was like a cream puff and it was filled with like vanilla cream but looking back now with the eggs and the milk and you cook it till it bubbles like that's pastry cream i was making Ra ranger rick did something that involved yeah, you, you <laughs> I like... was supervised, but I, I was a child of immigrants, so I was unsupervised as well. I was so cooking. Ranger I... Rick, for all these who don't know, Ranger Rick was a raccoon, I think. 
with a hat, <laughs> I think, and yeah, with a ranger like hat that. on. And it was the kids magazine that was that went with the World Wildlife Foundation. Do they still make this? What was the ma- was the magazine called Ranger Rick or was it's that just a character? In my mind, it was called Ranger Rick. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's so old school. You're really bringing me back. Yeah, I yeah. love Ranger Rick. That was where I got my recipes or that or I go to the library and I check out those old Betty Crocker books where it's like the 1950s is like that technicolor photography and I would like ogle all the jello mold dessert, you know, wobbly things. And I wouldn't make that stuff, but it was that's I used to love those old cookbooks. But the Ranger well, we had those in our basement. We had those in our basement. So for oh, me, yeah. that library was like, you know, my mom had my uh, so like w- when I was in junior high they were in my basement before that they were just you know in the house mm-hmm. my mom had all those old like grand, oh, diplôme, grand diplôme cooking school uh <laughs> you know what, like the, the the what was it women's something women's something encyclopedia right. women's day or something encyclopedia all the old sunset cookbooks which were great yes. all the old sunset cookbooks which were great uh-huh. and my mom had all of those and so I would just go and like read them because like you say, the pictures were just so great. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and then I bought copies of that stuff for myself. Like I, like the old, did you, did, did you at the library get the old time life books? The old time well, life I, I books? Would, I would look at all that stuff and I, I just, it would look so fancy and that's what I loved about it. You know, it looked so, everyone was all just dressed up and women were in dresses and they looked great. And it was, and those, you know, the, and the, everything sounded so ex- exotic back then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, I'll give you like so it was kind of a low point in US food ways. I think at that at that time like kind of 70s and 80s was kind of you know everyone anyone who was anyone was still in the US was still looking towards France for high end. No one had thought to right. look elsewhere for high end mm-hmm. stuff. You know, even you know when you think about it like it wasn't until fairly recently that high end Italian was a thing. People were like, "Oh, that's for not that expensive," right? It's so weird how far we've come, and thank God, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, um, the idea that you would go spend, you know, $800 uh, at, you know, a place like Masa, unheard of. It just didn't exist back then. (laughs) Unheard of. Um, But, uh, so when I was a kid, like I say, I was reading all this stuff. My mom got me interested. My dad used to drink crazy, fancy wine for no reason because it wasn't expensive back in the day. Uh And so I got it in my head that I wanted to go to Lutes, which was oh. the mm-hmm. fanciest restaurant run by Andre At Soltner. Time. Absolutely. And, and, and so when I was a kid, I was like, I want to go to Lutes, I want to go to Lutes, I want to go to Lutes, I want to go to Lutes. And- um, Did you go? Yeah, I went <laughs> when I was like, maybe like nine or 10 or really? something. Really? Like, like, yeah, like I went I, and mm-hmm. I loved it. It was a great time. And oh, of course, yeah. the, you know, the, 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 the waiters were like, who's this? freaking kid who like cares about the food you know what i mean uh-huh. because at the time kids weren't interested in food so like my mm-hmm. my you know my mom used to take me to cheese shops to like zabar's mm-hmm. or balducci's at the time mm-hmm. and they turn me loose at the food counter mm-hmm. and i'd be like hey but, but, but give me this one this one this one <laughs> you know what i mean because like <laughs> I've, I've spent all my time reading this stuff so like uh yeah so and then uh-huh. years later when i went to the french culinary that was another great honor. I got to meet and, you know, sometimes work with in the amphitheater, Andre mm-hmm. Soltner, who growing up, I mean, that was the restaurant. It was so amazing. Like, you know, he's I'm also sure a he, great guy. He is. And I'm sure his egg demos alone. Um, <laughs> let's see. Favorite beverage of choice. Be as specific as possible. I feel like I know this answer. 
seltzer water. Yes. How do you like it though? As specific as possible. Super bubbly, super cold. Don't get me weak stuff. Don't mean <laughs> I want like like the best one is at my house. Out of my tap is phenomenal. Uh, the, my and favorite, out of, favorite. Out of the tap, because why? Why is it so good at your house? Out of the tap. Oh, I just take very special care to make sure that it's extremely bubbly, very bubbly and very cold. Run it through two cold loops. Uh, I used to do it the French culinary, and I don't have access to it anymore. I also did it at existing conditions occasionally for myself. A mix of carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide, extremely That's cold. That's what I remember. Yeah, and that is very good, but it's hard to make, and you have to drink it very quickly. So, like, I would make it, and then we would drink it. So, like, we would all sit around the interns, we would make a bottle, and then we'd all pound it, and then we would make it again and pound it again. It's kind of like the tempura of water in the sense that you can't let it sit around. It's not something yes. that can sit. You have to make it and drink it. And so at existing <laughs> conditions, we didn't have it on the menu, but I would make it for people and make them drink it right away. I would stare at them. I would give them that, right. that, that stare, meaning now, yeah, you know, drink it don't, now. don't turn and talk to your friend, eat it now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I remember, drink, I remember your water, water mix being very, uh, like it was like a control center. It was all these dials and whatnot to, you know, for the right levels and everything. I still own that control center. I just don't have a nitrous tank on me right now. Uh, I should have set that up at home. Although, you know what? Teenage kids and, and a, a nitrous tank might maybe not such a smart idea, but. Well, you know, I'm sure you'll get there eventually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number six, what's the most embarrassing thing in your refrigerator right now? Oh, I don't feel you should be embarrassed by things in your fridge. I, I am the same way. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. But what do you think somebody might be surprised if that's in your refrigerator? Uh, well, remember, I also have two kids. So, like, there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't even know how it got in there. Okay. Like, Booker likes these fake, not fake, these Brie Bites from Trader Joe's, which are, like, oh. baby bells, but, like, yeah. with a candida mold on the outside embarrassing but it's like something that you wouldn't be like you know right. uh what else <laughs> I, uh, chefs, I, I see chefs eating that stuff you know so yeah. Cam, it's probably taste top you know trader joe stuff tastes great so i bet it's quite tasty um this is like a weird question for you because it's like I, this could we don't have enough time to go through this but the best kitchen tip hack or trick oh for <laughs> what for what kind of a person i'd say let's just go for everyone <laughs> Somebody, maybe somebody who doesn't cook. Like Via just get one, one trick, one tip, one hack. Um, hmm. Hmm. I know it's tough if you, for you. If you, if you, if you wrap something in aluminum foil and put it in your fridge, just throw it away now instead. Oh, really? Why? Why do you say that? Because you're not going to use it. You're not going to use it. As soon as you wrap it in aluminum foil, you can't see what it is unless you're so over the top that you actually put a, a, a label on it with a date and what it is. Right. It's going to stay in the back of your fridge. It's never going to get used. Then you're going to get to that point and you're going to unwrap. You'll be like, oh, is this still good? I don't know if it's yeah. still good or not. And then what do you do? You put it back in the fridge. So it definitely won't be good. So what's going to happen is I'm just telling you right now, save yourself the time mm -hmm. and throw it away now. Yeah, it's like wishful and, thinking that you'll get back to it. Like yeah, the yeah, wishful thinking. On the flip side, freeze it now. So like uh, Angela, mm -hmm. uh, so Angela Robots, when she wrote uh, her you know, recent thing, I had her on my podcast when she wrote her mm -hmm. book. And her best tip was right when you make the cake, slice the freaking cake, put wax paper between the slices and freeze it now. I'm like, mm -hmm. 
that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. So now, like, whenever I get breads or pastries or stuff in, I know I'm not going to finish it. It's going to go bad. Freeze it now. Freeze yeah, it why now. wait till it's stale and go, oh, I can't finish this. It's like, no, freeze it at its peak, you know? If you know you're freeze not going to. Freeze it at its peak. There you yeah. go. Okay, there you go. Tip? I love that tip. Um, and let's see, oh, number eight, if you could just wake up and have any new skill whatsoever, what would it be? You don't have to work for it. You just wake up and you got a new skill. What would it be? Some kind of crazy martial arts, probably. <laughs> I would not have thought that. <laughs> I mean, something something that is physically difficult that takes years of practice. It's like you know that. What I mean, it's like that scene in um, what is it, The Matrix? Matrix. Where he's yeah. like, I know kung fu. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Or like you know, like being suddenly really good at throwing a baseball. Like something that, like you know, like something that, like you know. Either something that takes years of practice or something you're either born with or you're not. You know what I mean? That I don't have. Natural ability. Yeah. Either something that Sometimes. you had to really work to, discipline, or you just woke up and, yeah, like I like I can't sing. It'd be, I, I don't have any desire to sing, but it would be nice to just wake up and just be, like, impressive, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good one. And that one you can use, I mean, martial arts, how often do I need to beat somebody up? Never. Yeah, it ne it never know, comes up. It would be so cool, though. People would be so blown away, you know. Yeah, but singing, <laughs> you don't like, you know, don't have like, to fight anyone. You just have to show the moves, and where it's like everyone just backs up, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, like, uh, you know, what's something I really want to know how to do, and I, I keep on almost learning how to do, but then I never, I never get there, or I like, I'll start and I don't have the time to finish. Play bagpipes. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be great, you know. And it's like yeah. not yeah. some. Yeah, I don't know if you want to spend that much time learning how to play bagpipes, but to just know how to do it would be cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. You wake up and you're like, <laughs> and you can just do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that you don't want to like be doing like, uh, you know, practicing bagpipes. You just want to play bagpipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's worse than drums, worse than trumpet. Like a bad bagpipe player is like, <laughs> oh my god. I um, I'm with you 100. Okay, favorite snack. You can uh, find what a snack is. Snack. Snacky snack. I, I really like pretzels. Uh, pretzels? You like the crunchy kind? Soft oh, yeah. pretzels? Crunchy pretzels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You like the you like the traditional shape or the stick? I do not like sticks. They're not pretzels. They're pretzeloids. <laughs> they're they're pretzel-like pretzel things. Is what they call them. Yeah. They're not real. They're not pretzels. Okay. I, from, the, from the time my kids were born, I would, uh, well, from the time they could speak, I would say this. Real pretzels are, and they would say twisted. I would say real pretzels are, and they would say twisted. Yeah, I was like, I was like, do pretzels contain fat as one of the ingredients? They're like, no, they don't. Mm. Because uh, I don't like. Uh, I've since found uh, a pretzel that has fat in it that I like. The problem mm. is, is that, but it's got like a, quite a bit of fat, right? So it actually has something. Whereas like the average um, pretzel. Like not to call out someone like Bachman's or someone like this, but they do this. They add some fat to their dough, to their traditional pretzel dough, and it it uh, it tenderizes it such that when you bite into it, it's got more of a cracker feel. It doesn't have the right kind of shatter that a pretzel has. The texture's wrong. So oh. it's like I'm pro fat. Like I'll dip my pretzel into some intensely fatty stuff. I don't care about it. It's not like I'm trying to get rid of the fat. It's just the texture of the pretzel doesn't want to have the fat in it. You know what I mean? It's like a cracker. You want it to be crunchy, <laughs> you know. Right, but like a cracker has some fat in it and it's crunchy. But a pretzel, a pretzel wants to be a pretzel. 
Yeah, pretzel should Where's be it? a pretzel. Uh, on that note, a pretzel should be a pretzel. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, Dave, thank you so much for having me on. I, I hope you can come back again because I always love talking with you. So um, we talk well, about- Well, I'm, I'm honored that you invited me, uh, you know, invited me <laughs> first or at least early. I don't know when you're gonna play these. You're but, the you know. first. You're, I, I, I was trying to come up with, um, you know, my podcast name is Food People Are the Best People. And, you know, I don't, because I hate that word foodie, you know? Oh, I it's hate a terrible it. word. I don't know what it's to call a terrible word. Yeah, so I just call them food people. So, but you're you like know, the biggest food person. So, did, did we used to have this conversation about how much we hate the word foodie? I don't know. I hate it. I hate it. I, why, I do, why do you hate it? I'll tell you why I hate it if you tell me why you hate it. It just sounds like a. It sounds gimmicky. Like it's a. It's a thing. Like it's so perky. It's like a. I'm a foodie. You know. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah, I'm exactly the same. For, for me, it's but there's like, no there's no better alternative. Like I, the, the other things are even worse. Like a, a gastronaut, gastronome, ga it's gastro. No. All that stuff is not good. All that European gastro, this gastro, that <laughs> ga ga doesn't sound good to American ears. That gas sounds delicious. It sounds gross. It sounds like yes. passing gas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. Gastric juices. It just doesn't sound good. Yeah. Yes. Why do you hate it so much? Uh, but pretty much the same. It's like, to me, it's like, if you say you're a foodie, it's like, you could be like, remember when we used to wear bell bottoms and cared about food? You know what I mean? It's like, it's, like, it's more like, you know, uh, I think, yeah. You know, for someone like you, like, it sounds like, you know, like a chef sounds like a chef, a maker or something like that, an artisan, but a, a foodie sounds like just like it's a, I don't know, it's just no substance yeah. to it. Anyway, right. so I, I refer to you, I refer to people as food people. So, but you know, once you meet a food person, you immediately know they're a food person, and there's a certain kinship which I appreciate. Like you're a food person, I'm a food person. We meet other food people, we automatically like each other. We have tons to talk about. So I that's why you know this that's what the whole premise of the show is just I get to talk to the people who I like to talk about about my favorite topics. So all right, well hopefully I didn't go too far into the weeds with you on some of the weird <laughs> flower stuff. You get it. always go too far, but that's that's the joy that's the joy all right. All right. <laughs> anyway thanks right. for listening to episode one of food people are the best people with cooking issues dave arnold of booker and dax <laughs>